Hello there, and welcome to the Fresh Faced Film Bro Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's latest film, Oppenheimer. Before we get started, I should note our future release schedule is currently pending. Me, along with my co-hosts, are all students, so our schedules fluctuate a bit, but we're going to do our best to get a regular schedule going. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my co-hosts. I'm Mason. Hello, I'm Jacob. And I did not tell you my name, but it is Ethan. So let's let's dive right in. Okay. Initial thoughts, reactions. I want to get a get a one word going. Floating. I was floating. Floating. Yeah. I'll say uh, striking. Exhilarating is is the word that 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 comes to mind for me. That's a good one. All right. Floating. Jacob, thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you guys were talking about exhilarating and like the whole feeling I had with this movie was kind of going up an endless lift hill on a roller coaster. And there were multiple drops per se, but at the same time, there were also more lift hills. So it was like you were constantly in a state of either falling or just going straight up. And it kind of like your stomach was either just completely rising to your throat or dropping. I like that a lot. I like that. Mm-hmm. Mason. Yeah, so with striking, I would say, like, narratively, striking. Technically, it's striking. I think Mm -hmm. that, like, Nolan films are obviously, like, that's, like, what he's going for. He wants you to, like, come to the theaters. He wants you to see it in IMAX. And I think that, like, this is, like, one of his best films at just, like, absolutely, like, striking you. Yeah, agreed. And and in a a similar vein... That's why I said exhilarating, mostly because of the pacing. I mean, he made a biopic at breakneck speed. It was ridiculous. Like, I was sitting in the theater confused. It, I mean, you can look up his Wikipedia page, Oppenheimer's Wikipedia page, and it, it's it's fine. It's, like, comprehensible, and you can digest it. You can be like, cool. But Nolan doing typical Nolan things made it as convoluted. I mean, in, in the convolution, he made it beautiful as well. It was, like so thrilling to watch you know i think we had talked about before beforehand about um the score Mm -hmm. and we can just we that's sort of what i want to talk about first because you had you guys had said it was operatic and i'd seen a few people like online and our Mm -hmm. people i know mention the score is a big talking point and a lot of people who even people who really love the movie would come to the point that well there's too much music or it was like too distracting. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a movie that out of a three hour runtime, about two and a half hours of that was completely scored. I can count on one hand how many scenes didn't have music. And I yeah. feel like the music gave the movie so much heft that it felt so much different than like, say, John Williams scores. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, those are blockbusters. They're going to be big. It's it's going to be big and bombastic. With Oppenheimer, it's sort of another, you know, big score mm-hmm. in the, in a similar vein, like a blockbuster. But there's 
something so sinister and unnerving about it. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, not to get too musical theory esque, but there's a lot of like microtonal dissonance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a lot of the score, it's very unnerving. Yeah. And that this big of a recording is like keep just it just keeps going and keep and going and going and mm-hmm. going. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a understandable contention. When I was in the in the theater, I didn't notice how much the score was playing. So I, I think I mean, obviously we'll we'll talk more about the score in a second, but Ludwig did a fantastic job and I think the score provides much needed levity and such like a weighty and and just difficult film to watch, you know? Um I mean the the flourishes that the string flourishes and 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 that motif that comes back in the, in the cue that everybody talks about, uh, can you hear the music? I mean, it's it's just magnificent, yeah. right? And um so that there are definitely moments of beauty and and awe, especially um paired with the sequences of the visions in Oppenheimer's head when he's like literally seeing the nuclear like is it the the fusion or fission reactions mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah I, I don't know uh I, I think the music is paired wonderfully with film and, and it only works to uh enhance that experience yeah I think with like any Nolan I mean it's he's kind of coming after like uh, like Nolan and Zimmer's collaborations in the past are are like obviously like you have like the visual meets like the auditory and that's like the great thing about the art form is like it's just putting like the two mediums together and it's like it's just eye opening you know what I mean like mm-hmm. you can't experience that anywhere else and I think that Gorenson coming after Zimmer is just like I think that that was great for Gorenson because he he kind of knows what Zimmer was doing, and I mean you get that with Tenet, and then you get that here where it's just like score is obviously like very 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 important to the film. Um yeah the the baton was passed pretty like effortlessly there was there's no bumps in the road it kind of just they picked up where they left off and yeah so he he picked up the slack for sure. Um yeah. so Mason I see you have some uh some thoughts on the the narrative similarities between this and dunkirk um and specifically the chapters in the in the film do you want to elaborate about that at all yeah i just think that like i think this goes into like the editing by jennifer lame we can talk about her more Mm -hmm. like in a second but i think that the like starting with the two chapters you see the fission and then you see the fusion Mm-hmm. One of them's in color, one of them's in black and white. And I think just bouncing back and forth from both of those is, I mean, it's different than Tenet because Tenet is, or it's different than Dunkirk, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Dunkirk is playing with like three storylines and they're all kind of intertwining. This is only two, mm-hmm. but I think that you can, like, I feel like through the editing and through like the bouncing back and forth between the chapters, you get that's where you get like the climax of the movie and that's where he can really play like with your emotions. And I I think the editing is what is, is the strength of this film. It's really what keeps the pacing, what it is and, and and what keeps a a three hour viewing experience feel like two two fifteen maybe like it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a long watch. It's yeah. The pacing's fantastic. Pacing was great. The editing, um, took a little bit to grow on me 
Mm-hmm. I grew I grew to love it on second watch. I guess my main thing was the first time I was watching it, there's so much flying back and forth between because I mean you're starting off with Strauss's uh, cabinet interview with the Senate and mm-hmm. Oppenheimer's past and like even jumping in the middle of there with his uh, interrogation with the is it the CIA or the FBI? I think it's the FBI. I'm not I, sure. I, Either I, way, I, some some government agency, you know. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's, you know, you're jumping back between the three. And so at the beginning, when you're not, when you don't fully have your footing, it sort of feels like you're still watching the trailer. But once you watch it a second time, you don't really get that feeling. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. at, fir- at first, it can be kind of like, whoa. But after a while, I grew to really love how um, ambitious it was. Yeah, for sure. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, speaking of ambition, I feel like Nolan covered a base that people have been harping on him for not covering forever, which is character development. Um, we we see that he has some of the most fleshed out and 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 deep characters uh, to date in in his films. Granted that they were real people that existed, but mm-hmm. still, he does a great job uh, within the runtime of making them feel round and and whole and and just real i guess um i would love to comment on this on this on the characters so admitted admittedly before oppenheimer the only nolan movies i had seen were his late his latest three before this one so i'd seen interstellar dunkirk and tenet and i loved interstellar because i feel like you know, I even though I didn't, I only saw Ten in the theater. I watched Interstellar and Dunkirk in the comfort of my home, but I could tell, you know, sort of right off the bat with my first Nolan movie, it was like, all right, it's very, it's very showy, it's very large and amb- ambitious. But Interstellar bounced that out with really bounced out that that ambition and abstract ideas with really good characters, and with Dunkirk and Tenet. Now, I like Dunkirk and Tenet was not my cup of tea. Granted, I only <laughs> saw Tenet once. More on that but, later. <laughs> more on that later. You know, we'll we'll revisit that some Uh-oh. at some point. Yeah, we, we so, have some. Yeah, the the folks in this podcast have some thoughts on Tenet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll we won't dwell too much on that. But what I was missing with those two was characters, and both those movies have a lot of things I really like about them. But you know, I was sort of craving. I wanted Nolan to take, I wanted to keep him, I want to let him keep his ambition, but at the same time, narratively, I wanted him to really refocus. And before Oppenheimer, I did myself a favor and watched all of his movies. And my favorite of his movies before I saw Oppenheimer was Memento. Because mm, that is a, so a movie that, that is a movie that is very, that is not ambitious in a technical sense, like most of his later movies but it's very ambitious narratively mm-hmm. and concept wise. And when I watched it, that movie filled a hole that I feel like was missing from his filmography. I, it was something I didn't know he could do was write such an interesting and a, admittedly incredibly strange story about a man just trying to find the guy who murdered his wife. And I won't spoil, spoil how he did it, but that movie, I thought those characters and the characters like those people he interacted with and how they treated him and his whole background was all brilliant. And I wanted more of that in a Nolan movie. And with Oppenheimer, I got that and more. 
Yeah, I think before Oppenheimer, like, I, I think you could argue that Nolan's best character is Guy Pierce's character in Memento. For sure. I think he sees, like, his arc, it's very clear to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, he all the narrative weight. But then comes in Oppenheimer, and then I think you could, I think you could argue both for Killian Murphy's character and RDJ's character. I mm-hmm. think they both kind of see the conclusion to their ideas, and I think that you could see both of them. Potent, I mean, certainly getting a nomination um, come Oscar season, but maybe even a win too. I would love to see Emily Blunt get a nod as well. She was spectacular, and I, I mean, the arc of her character is just amazing. That 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 uh it's not technically i guess it's a hearing scene the hearing scene was just it was incredible to watch in the theaters um so much fun so american prometheus what do we think about that idea and and how it was sort of expressed via i guess just no no one's creativity and um his his vision well i mean i personally i think that adapting books is i mean we've been seeing that for years in the medium and i think that it's it's a very 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 hard book to adapt i mean it's uh, i think it's eight or nine hundred pages and i think that it couldn't have been done without some of the like co-writers on it they uh, apparently they were like on set all the time and they were making sure that it was historically accurate i think by the end of the film the the co-writer had said that it was basically like 98 or 99 percent like accurate to to what was written in the book which is that's ridiculous yeah yeah that's crazy for a movie you can tell that nolan it's a weird way of putting it but he it's almost like he loves oppenheimer as a person yeah he was given so much to work with and there's just so much care and vision given to like his nuance as a human mm-hmm. being. And, you know, I've read a couple biographies before. I'm not the biggest reader, but what I love in a biography is just if it's someone that I really admire and respect, that the biography does not sugarcoat their life. Yep. And Oppenheimer, given, I would say, in any other hands in Hollywood, it would have been very, they probably would have put him on a pedestal. It would have and been easy to, yeah. And it is, and it's easy to, I mean, you don't, the average person did not know much about Oppenheimer before this movie. And he could have just been the guy saying, who ended what a World War II. Yeah. Great American hero. But mm-hmm. here, Nolan reads this biography and realizes, you know, I feel like, you know, no one has a fast fascination and empathy towards war. So maybe he went into this movie wanting to sort of tackle it like a Dunkirk but when he read it he was like whoa he's so much more of a complicated man than I thought mm-hmm. and the best the best way he could have done it yeah I mean there's there's plenty of scenes where it, it's clear that he's not painted out to be some sort of hero you know the, the scene at the beginning with with the apple um and then even, even uh when, when he is having an affair with his wife uh just how that's handled when he's out in uh the the woods having a breakdown and and uh Emily Blunt's character basically comes and tells him to snap out of it um which is which is brilliant yeah yeah it's he's he's not painted out to be uh superman 
and he shouldn't be. <laughs> no, yeah, rightfully so. I think, yeah, I think Nolan did right by, by being, you know, as biographically accurate as he could without, you know, sacrificing the personal narrative of, of the screenplay that he was adapting. And I think that that gives the film a really, really good weight to it. You know, it's not all, it's not mm -hmm. all sugar coated. For sure. It could be because I just love a good love story. Not that the love story in this movie <laughs> yeah. is good, but yeah, it's very thought provoking. And mm, certainly the way they portrayed it, I mean, the intimate scenes with Florence, with the, uh, um, with the uh, Gene, yeah, and Oppenheimer were done and peppered out, peppered throughout the movie, yeah, so well. So you see again, you he couldn't have done this movie any other way by just putting him on the putting them on the pedestal. You see him for who he was, and true. Mm -hmm. It's not like us as the audience is expected. No one doesn't frame Oppenheimer as someone to gang up on or hate. You just you empathize with him because you just yeah you're given the see, whole picture yeah yeah you're given the whole picture and at the end of the day he was human. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right, we're gonna pivot to towards the technical side of things. Um, who wants to get us started off? I would like to say one one thing was that I first saw it in IMAX. I was able to see the movie twice. And on my second watch, I saw it in a very tiny theater that was probably about 25 seats big. And my thought when I walked into this theater was that this will not do the movie justice. I'm so glad to have seen it in IMAX. This is going to ruin the auditory experience for me. It did not. I actually even grew to appreciate it even more. While you should, while you definitely should see it in IMAX if you if you're given the luxury to. Seeing it in a regular theater, given that the theaters kept up pretty well, mm -hmm. is just as mind blowing. Also, that's incredible. Yeah, because I mean, especially from a marketing standpoint, you know, Nolan is is like the guy who is telling people to see his film in IMAX and that it should only be seen that way in a in a true IMAX 70 millimeter, you know, format. Which but, I would like to add, there are only about 10 70 millimeter projectors in the entirety of North America. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to jump back to the score really quick. Um, I have some notes that I've written down just about cues that stood out to me. But, but first off, mm -hmm. I want to talk about... Um, Ludwig's uh, uh, approach to, to scoring this. Um, my initial reaction to this, I, I have written down how much of the score is done in the box. Now, for the first couple cues, it sounds like a lot of this could have been done in Pro Tools, but in listening to interviews and, and reading up on it, he claims to have recorded a lot of it in, in the studio, and it was done over the course of maybe three to five days, as I understand. Um. And I, I think, and, and the technique that he, he keeps on talking about introducing in um, the interviews is what they did to record Can You Hear the Music? Because the, the, the whole um, idea of that is that, the, that, that sound accompanies the, the fusion reaction um, or fission. I'm, excuse me, I'm not a, a, a <laughs> physicist. Yeah. Um, That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But during that it's reaction, okay. th there are metric modulations that occur. And um, it, it's 
almost polyrhythmic in a sense, and that uh, the tempo compounds by um, mathematical metrics. Um, and so there was a whole system devised on how to get the ears for the players, um, like the metronomes, correct. Or, or and, and that was played live in one take. So it wasn't comped. They did it all in real time, which I think is fascinating. And honestly, I would love to talk to the Pro Tools engineer about how he... Um, I don't know, automated that because that's that's crazy. But um, yeah. I, I mean, it turned out great. It's phenomenal to listen to. And I was just like listening to it right before we got on. Just feeling so jealous about how good both just like the recording sounds and how good the mix is. It feels so hefty and like it's just it, it translates so beautifully in, in, in a in a in a theater setting and just on a, you know, pair of AirPods. So. It's awesome. Oh, um, and then I wanted to mention some cues that stood out to me. Um, obviously, everybody loves Can You Hear the Music. Um, Gravity Swallows Light was super interesting. Uh, I really liked the textures and the chord changes. And then Meeting Kitty was one of my favorites. I love the strings, the pizzicato uh, techniques, um, and the use of both synth and orchestral elements, which Gorenson is like, that's his hallmark. I mean, you can say that's that's Zimmer's thing, but I feel like Zimmer at this point he's almost completely in the box. Ludwig has kind of made himself the guy who does a little bit of both. But yeah, the percolating synths I, I wrote around the five minute mark were just like heavenly, and yeah. So there, there's so much. I mean, I, I could talk about the score forever, but this this is a full movie podcast, so we're gonna we're gonna keep it and keep it. I will, I will add, I will add, I love when a composer doesn't simply watch the movie and say, well, I'm going to write something epic or I'm going to write something more akin to a ballad. This is someone who understands the vision and I love, I didn't know that about, well, when you hear it, like when you give it that explanation about, can you hear the music being compounded Mm -hmm. in the tempo? Yeah. That makes so much, it makes so much sense and it gives Mm -hmm. you like a whole nother perspective. Like, yeah, they really thought about every angle not he, just, he is so not just making a big song uh yeah and even i mean little self-plug here i did an analysis of um the music for creed on my youtube channel it's just my name ethan morell so if you want to go check it out but um in in that in that score uh adonis creed or adonis creed's theme is played on a boxing canvas like the bass drum for for that he he sources sounds from the cinematic world which like it's it's like almost using diegetic sounds to source your music which i think mm. is so brilliant and such just such a good way to honor the filmmaking you know because i feel like so many composers are just kind of willy-nilly write some music get paid but like ludwig takes his craft seriously and so, and and he it, he certainly uses the diegetic thing for a black panther too i mean oh for sure just yeah. going to africa for years the dedication is insane. It's real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about Jennifer Lane's editing? We mentioned it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go into the editing a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think that the the editing is the the biggest standout for me in terms of the movie, other than maybe Killian's performance. Um, I think that the way that she handles the two chapters and gives each of them weight is incredible. And also... It's just you don't really see films that kind of go out on a limb and edit at a different pace than what everything else is edited at. 
mm-hmm. like in in the mainstream or today. And I think that you can see this a little bit going back to Tenet. I think for Tenet, Nolan told uh, Jennifer Lame that it was going to be the hardest thing that she'd ever done, and it was. And I think that I think that for Oppenheimer, it's kind of just a continuation of that. But I mean, in a, in a different way. But I think that you can certainly say that she's maybe the best editor working right now. I mean, the the her credits include Hereditary, Tenet, Marriage Story. I mean, boom, boom, and now boom. Oppenheimer. Yeah. And uh-huh. That's range. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, this the editing's it felt similar to Tenet and, and in a way these, those films by Nolan are so antithetical. They're the opposite. There's not a single action scene in, in Oppenheimer. Tenet is all action, no dialogue. Mm. It's like no expo up. It just throws you right in. I feel like yep. one of my gripes with Oppenheimer, and, and this is super like splitting hairs here, but I did feel like we got expo dumped a little bit in the first 25 to 30 minutes. It was a lot, but like he no one's trying to tackle a lot with catching us up from Oppenheimer's years in school all the way to when he's doing the Trinity test, you know. There's a lot of ground to cover. So I think he gets a pass on that. But I mean, editing yeah, like you said, the range of editing those two so smoothly and just so dynamically. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, and that I feel like that's the biggest uh, advocate for saying that the pacing is so good. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, even with amazing writing and amazing acting, if it's not edited well, you're going to get, you're going to get bored, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that that's, it, it's so, so important to the film. And it, it really, really wouldn't have been the same without her editing. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. All right. So another huge, uh, hallmark of of nolan's production is that he tries to stay away from cgi when possible he opts for um practical use and uh i think mason had some some things jotted down about some of the techniques that he used a little bit more in depth yeah so just for some of the like explosion-esque like imagery Mm -hmm. like when you when you hear the can you hear the music Mm -hmm. uh cue you're you're getting like complimented with just insane like little like fizzes and stuff yeah mm -hmm. um and i think that that's like i was reading that that was done through miniatures and sometimes bigatures which Mm -hmm. is just like a bigger miniature yeah so it's kind of like the same thing (laughs) and then like also like also like changing shutter speeds and stuff that's so cool yeah (laughs) like i think i think the techniques used for it is is really cool and it's i mean honestly it, it kind of reminded me of 2001 a space odyssey where you know like kubrick's kind of he he wants to be a very like physical filmmaker mm-hmm. and i think nolan really i mean nolan obviously loves kubrick and he mm-hmm. gets that from him and i think nolan just wants to be like so hands-on and he wants like as little visual effects as possible which mm-hmm. i think is amazing yeah, and it looks incredible. I mean, special shout out to when you're not when you're working with those like checkpoints. Special shout out to um yeah. set design was obviously incredible. And you know, one of the big thing that everyone talked about was how about the makeup and hairstyling, especially on Killian from yeah. 
for aging for aging and even yeah. on all of them the scene in the white house where everyone yeah. reconvenes when he's mm-hmm. given that medal of honor and they're all mm-hmm. like closer to 70 instead of the mm-hmm. 50 60 range that yeah. they hover around for most of the movie was really stunning it was very well done so production design um the film does so well i'm remembering back to uh i, I saw a picture of um a a kid that I went to school high school with on Instagram and he he posted a picture of Killian Murphy and Matt Damon at Princeton during the time of filming and so to to think that you know 2022 was being lived in while this film was shot is kind of ridiculous because there's absolutely nothing to clue you in it it completely sucks you into that world it's easily one of the strengths the greatest strengths of this film Mm-hmm. Yep, I think I think that complements the pacing too. You you don't ever really feel like you're you're getting you're getting sucked out of the world or anything. It's very, it's, it's just it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, speaking of visuals and just aesthetics, the cinematography. I mean, Hoyt Van Hoytema, he did it again. You know, like I mean, the the dude just can't miss. I'm sorry. No, yeah. He's, he's, uh, I mean, other than other than Roger Deakins, I think he might be the best working. It's quite like, possible. Cinematographer. Yeah. Right a now. great, a great, uh, probably my favorite moment in the movie, honestly, was when Gene dies, and there's a scene in the woods where Kitty goes looking for Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Everything is everything is working together beautifully in unison. The score, the lighting, the costume design, and of course Killian and. Uh, Who's that actress's name again? Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. Yep. Yeah, of course. Their performances yes. were excellent. When she's on the horse and she turns the corner, you, which is just some pretty fantastic visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. If you write it down on paper, it seems so simple. Yet you would, it would make any other director smack themselves in the face for not doing it sooner. But she turns the corner and. There's a fire that he had lit previously, and it's dawn. That fire is gone, and the sound, the score, is swirling. And I noticed on second watch, you can hear like the fire ending, the crackle, just quick crunches and stops. You see the the ashes of the once fire as he is shivering in the cold because huh. the one fire he had with Gene has been stomped extinguished yeah it's been extinguished wow and that i that's something you just you look at it's like mm-hmm. oh well he's outside he's cold but it goes so f- much further beyond that. yeah man a, a little bit of that is like another another um example of that is the first and last shot being being the the little tiny raindrops falling and yes. that just kind of being being an allegory for like dropping bombs and stuff yeah and yeah mm-hmm. it's, it's it's brilliant it's amazing yeah, good art reinforces itself in every way, and I mean, we we see that all throughout, you know, literature, poetry, music, and 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 film. I mean, you're a big Tarkovsky guy; he's all about that. But I mean, Nolan does a great job here, even even and in, in, in the small details. The details are everything. Um, yeah, and you, and you were talking about uh, the the horse shot, Jacob. That that really reminded me of Jordan Peele's Nope which Mm. Hoyt also did. 
And oh, really? Yeah, it's basically like he's got everything under his belt. You know, he can make mm. every single frame of the film look like a painting. It's it's amazing. All right, Mason, uh, Jacob, I'm gonna let y'all do your thing on sound. Yeah, I was gonna say I was okay. I was wondering because yeah, my main thing that I've been dying to get to was see for me it's just like a few bullet point moments that really blew my mind. The whole movie was mind blowing from a sound design perspective, but I feel like you have to start when you're talking about sound at this movie. You have to start with the gymnasium scene. Yeah, right. Yeah, he walks in. You. This is right after the bomb test is successful. So you're still reeling from the after, like the physical effects of hearing that bomb. Because at first, you know, of course, I we all sort of knew that when that bomb was going to drop, it was going to stay silent. And you're mm-hmm. going to take in the awe and just wonder of the, of the scientific step that they had just mm-hmm. taken and then get slapped in the face with the actual harsh reality of that bomb. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's just definitely loud. Mm-hmm. I was thankful to have earplugs the first yeah. time watching it. Yeah, I put them in right when that scene, right, right before that was going to happen. Same. And then yeah. uh, I forgot earplugs the second time, and I was like, "Oh well, it's just a regular theater. Maybe it won't be so bad." And it still rocks you to the core. Mm-hmm. So you're still dis, you're still dis, disoriented from how loud that bomb is. And you immediately go from everyone clapping and congratulating and overwhelming Oppenheimer to the stomping of feet. Yeah. And it is not a, you know, it's sick. It, it's not, it's not a fun pep rally. That's for sure. You know, no. it's, it's, he's emerging from the depths, from the darkness of the bleachers too. Yeah. You know, going back to the visual storytelling, he emerges from, from the dark and, I actually think those footsteps may have been louder than the bomb. They might be equally as loud. I'm not sure, but he's giving that speech and everything. You know, there's a thunderous applause because he's trying to cope with what's just happened. And then he says, I wish we could have used this on the Germans and everyone's applause gets sucked in Mm -hmm. and you're left with just the creaking of the bleachers and the air of the room and what was striking the second time watching it was that i noticed that when everyone's cheers and claps fade away immediately mm-hmm. get sucked back the final thing you hear is one isolated scream so it's everyone's clap and then just a definitely loud scream for maybe half a millisecond and then that's it yeah and that blew me away. So yeah, that's why the gymnasium scene, I feel like, is the penultimate example of how good and how careful they handle sound in this movie. Yeah. Mason, Mason, Mason if you want to elaborate further. Yeah, so um, Richard King is the like main supervising sound editor on this, and he's been the main supervising sound editor for all basically all of Nolan's work and he's he's really come like under fire obviously <laughs> yeah, for yeah. like tenet for Dunkirk. like Bane yeah. stuff and dark yeah. knight rises interstellar can we tell what mcconaughey's saying i don't know um for i mean dunkirk was a little less bad i guess mm-hmm. but certainly for tenet 
I mean, I think with Tenet, you kind of saw the line was reached. You know what I mean? People, people were sick of it. People were like sick of Nolan being mm-hmm. like um, stubborn. And I think for Oppenheimer, like aside from the scenes that you were talking about, Jacob, I feel like it's actually like kind of safe, but like in like the best way possible. Like I feel like the dialogue is the most clear of like any of Nolan's past works. I feel like I actually think it is the most clear out of like any of his movies. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's like you could easily say that, and I think that I think that it's it's a great move in terms of like the actual sound design of the film. There's an article that uh, Richard King gave um, that he's talking about like what they use and stuff, and he's talked about how. They didn't use any electronics, any synth sounds. Everything you hear in the film is all natural, which is basically unheard of these days. So does that mean that and, there was no sound design? Well, like, they on the they back used, end in post? They used natural sounds and just like manipulated them. So that so they sourced all their stuff organically. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. As opposed to yeah. just like farming sound libraries. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Which is which is very impressive. Yeah. And I think that like obviously you were talking about the Trinity test scene a little bit, Jacob. And I think that like just seeing the visual and having that like realistic impact where like the sound is delayed by like 30, 40 seconds, that had me on the edge of my seat. Just mm-hmm. even narratively, the sound is just like telling the story there. It's telling you everything that you need. And I think that silence in the film is used in a way that is very, very, very powerful. And I think you really, really feel that dynamic range that, that they're going for. There's for sure. The dynamic range is massive and it's it's all, it's all, I would honestly say Christopher Nolan, one of, if not like the only directors, at least from what I've seen, that is, I imagine him in the recording studio whenever they are mixing and mm-hmm. like finalizing the touches to this movie because what what other director from a sound perspective would make Tenet and Oppenheimer and clearly this isn't I've you know Mason mentioned like Richard mm-hmm. King coming under fire that's not that's not his you know I feel like he's that's probably very no much call. yeah exactly he's yeah, given exactly. He, yeah. he's given very clear directions out of sound in his movies and i feel like with a lot of directors if any directors you know if i if you know more please let me know but like Mm -hmm. you're not you're not getting like strict instructions on how they want to sound and with nolan it's like Uh clear clearly it's not just like oh like they weren't paying attention it's like that's what he was going for and oppenheimer clearly shows that yeah i think that's why you can i guess forgive some of the innovations i would say in tenet i mean i don't mm-hmm. really want to get into that now because that's yeah. a little bit beside the point but i think that like i think that nolan really really cares about every single aspect of mm-hmm. like the technical part of the filmmaking yeah and I, I think that that's why he's he's one of the best directors right now i mean and uh, clearly it's it's all technical i mean tenet is is the perfect example of that yeah you know little yeah. to no character development plot it's just it's just yeah, it, it, technical feat and, and just visual splendor yeah he he doesn't nolan doesn't care about narrative yeah, he just he wants to really tickle your brain and, yeah stimulate you yeah and, and it's <laughs> yeah. he succeeds you know yeah 
Yeah, I mean, but, in my opinion, it does. And that's what makes Oppenheimer so good is that he balanced. He's he cared about narrative and mm-hmm. he cared about technical, and he balanced it perfectly. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's obviously he has the capacity to do so. It's just he's intentional about the decisions that he makes. And and yeah. some of those intentions being like we were talking about before the show started, like they they didn't use any ADR in mm-hmm. the whole film. And he also just like he wants it to be like as much production sound as possible, which mm-hmm. is just I mean, again, that's unheard of too. And, you know, some of those kind of capabilities aren't possible even today you can't just use production sound but uh, richard king talks about in that article about how like they they did as like as little post-production work as possible because no one just wants the real authentic sound and performance of the dialogue of the actors that happens the day that they film that's probably yeah I, I think that's a great point i mean yeah i don't want to say it's unrealistic but it's I'm sure it's difficult for the people on on you know sound crew. It makes like, it, imagine it, recording it, the sound of the uh, like <laughs> atomic tests and stuff. It's like yeah, like, Jordan, like Jordan Peele sweating. Yeah, yeah. Like that, like it's just constantly <laughs> that. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. <laughs> it it makes the movie feel warm. Uh-huh. You know, it doesn't yeah, it doesn't feel it, like it the really sound does. it doesn't feel like the yeah. sounds coming out of a box yeah, it just it sounds feels like you're in the room with yeah. them exactly uh-huh. it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel like synthesized at all it's very it's very natural and i think that specifically for a movie like oppenheimer that's like a biography you really yeah. really want that something with maybe like a tenant or a dunkirk probably wouldn't matter as much but with this you you really want that kind of naturalistic sound design you know i, I was wondering how does one like i guess such as richard king go about designing the sound of an atomic bomb. Like, what does that process look like? I want to see, like, the, the, the stacks and layers and Pro Tools of... Exactly, of, yeah, because all it comes down to is layering about 200 different sounds, probably, which is right. incredibly yeah. impressive. I mean, I, I, I'd i have to watch it again to actually, like, really, really try to listen to it, yeah. but there's probably some odd sounds mm-hmm. that are kind of buried in the layering. Yeah, and it's probably super intentional, right? Because I mean, people talk about, or or when you do research on it, I mean, the immense heat. So, is there stuff? Is there sound of stuff being vaporized? Um, obviously, the impact, yeah. uh, the shock wave. Mm-hmm. There's just there's there's levels to an explosion that you really have to 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 nitpick and almost you know be be. A physicist about and, and get get in the shoes of, of someone who would be experiencing that or, or you know testing the device to understand how do i how do i create this this sonic environment to 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 be true to what people are seeing on screen because it can really pull you out if you don't do it right yeah and then you would think that something like this would be easier because it's it's a realistic soundscape mm-hmm. it's something that actually happened but it's something that happened maybe two or three times mm-hmm. that is i mean you can't reproduce that today you know what i mean not not yeah. the scale of it at least for and obviously time. it was successful because everybody talks about that as being like one of the most gripping parts of the film so i mean yeah bravo to yeah, richard king and his team because they knocked it out <laughs> yeah and the whole the whole team yeah it's yeah. very very impressive i mean that's why audio engineers are scientists man I mean, even like just yeah. talking about the atomic bomb and understanding and like 
solving the puzzle of how to even like craft that is unbelievable. Yeah. And you're I, talking I, about that. You're talking about the Pro Tools session. And like yes, how, yeah. it's like 200 layers. Um, little sneak preview for a future episode, but Barbie, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. There you can see the Pro Tools sessions for that online right now. And it's a it's, it's cool to look at and mm. very, very daunting. So yeah. I I just I want to see the drafts of the atomic bomb sounds that didn't make the cut because I'm sure right. they would have worked but I I I wonder what the most creative or or maybe like outlandish sound I mean they they probably all all sounded relatively realistic but you know I I'm I'm thinking back to um the the sound of the batmobile and the batman that that uh in the batman or the dark knight in the Batman, Mason, help me out with uh, who did was that Mark Mangini who did the sound for that? Oh, oh no, <laughs> yeah, I can't. Wait, I'm drawing a blank. Let, let, yeah, let me, yeah, he's let me gonna check look it up. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm drawing a blank, but um, yeah, they said that they used a, a, the sound of a rocket to to sort of base the the Batmobile's engine off of when it starts up, and I was just wondering what what sort of creative um textures they they uh snuck in there that we probably didn't catch and there's there's probably a lot there's there's so much that goes into sound design of course there honestly there's not any like huge names okay. there, there's andy nelson who's worked on la la land avatar force awakens catch me if you can shrek mm-hmm. shinu's list babylon mm-hmm. so that oh, that's wow. that's that, that's a lot name. That's, yeah that's yeah that's, yeah. Pretty, that's big <laughs> yeah. that's big yeah. i would be happy if that was my career oh certainly certainly <laughs> also no, one more thing about the sound this is something, you know, we were talking about how directors, only a few directors, if, you know, very few are very like intentional on the sound that's going, that is being a part of their movie. Mm-hmm. And with Nolan's movies, I've, I feel like I don't notice this with enough movies, but you'll be watching a scene and people will be talking in like a crowded room, yet it doesn't feel like they're in a crowded room. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And Nolan is one of the few people that under like understands like the environment and and even in his movies that, you know, dialogue wise can be unintelligible. Every environment is fully textured. Mm-hmm. Like to, to the fullest oh, without being without being too distracting. Yeah. It's for sure. It's, you know, definitely commendable. It's excellent. All right. Do we have any final thoughts on the film um, before we wrap up here? It is my favorite movie of the year, and I would say not even close. There are plenty of other. This is this year has honestly been a great year for movies. Yeah, that's all I can say. All, all I'll say is it's one of Nolan's best. And I remember telling some people after Tenet, after he was coming under fire for Tenet, I was I was telling some people he's gonna go kind of smaller and more like a, a more grounded film and and it's going to be like critically praised mm-hmm. and i feel like that's exactly what oppenheimer is and i'm just very very excited to like see what he does next i have yeah. no idea like the direction that his career is going to go into agreed at this point i wouldn't call myself i, I wouldn't say that nolan is my favorite director but nolan releases make me the most excited that any director like any current director does like his his releases get me like the most anticipated 
for whatever and reason. And he gets people to the theaters. Yeah, which yeah, is he gets extremely important seats. for the uh-huh. industry. So that's like a dying breed of like I would say him and Tarantino are like the only people where people mm-hmm. will come to the movie by name only. Yeah. And and maybe Gerwig now. You know? Yeah, maybe Gerwig yeah. now. Shout out Gerwig. Yeah, shout out Greta Gerwig. Um, my my thought is, obviously I enjoyed it. I loved it. It wasn't, I wasn't hit as viscerally as I was in in my Tenet viewing. Mm. There there was something Mason and I both had a fantastic viewing experience of Tenet, and we'll talk more about that later. But I I understood and I appreciated how how elegant this this film was, and you know what what it accomplished both narratively. For, for Nolan as sort of like a, a, a almost a reinvention of his identity and, and just technically as well. But I think this film is going to age very, very nicely. And I think we're going to look back on it in a decade to come and be like, that is a solid film. I, I was thinking about, they're not quite similar, but it just made me think of uh, when I watched all the president's men, I'm like, wow, that's just a great movie. It's just, yep well made it's a good watch you know i think oppenheimer yeah, that... is better i think oppenheimer is better than all the presidents men but in in the same vein i i just i think it's going to age very well yeah i'd say that and it's been oppenheimer has been compared to oliver stone's jfk um mm-hmm. which it came out like in the 90s and there's a lot of similarities and i think jfk has aged perfectly so mm-hmm. i think that oppenheimer i mean yeah it'll it'll age great and then I feel well, like the, J- the JFK movie might be the sequel to Oppenheimer because they name drop JFK <laughs> at the end. So if exactly, you want to see a yeah. movie more like Oppenheimer, then go oh. watch JFK immediately after. <laughs> they, they gotta they watch it. it. It's amazing. They said it was like a like like a Disney Channel celebrity reveal or something. I saw but, people, you know, this credit scene. This yeah. jumps back to the cast, which we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. But I saw some people complain about how the cast just felt. Like like the Avengers in a the way Avengers, where it's yeah, just like uh-huh. you know, you know Killian Murphy, Matt Damon, and like R. Josh, yeah, yeah, yeah R. R. D. J. Josh Peck, Dane DeHaan, you know. Dane, let's talk about Dane DeHaan. <laughs> yeah, Dane, uh, all, Dane DeHaan. All, all I was gonna add before we get to Dane, before we get to the Dane DeHaan is just, you know, these aren't to me. It wasn't like oh, Matt Damon's playing Matt Damon. These are great. These are all great actors that are all under the complete control of the script. Listen, you know, Dane DeHaan <laughs> was fantastic as himself in this film. I will, I will say that. I mean, I haven't, if I'm being honest, I think I've only seen DeHaan and Spider-Man too. <laughs> can, can we get a quick shout out for uh, Rami Malek, the, the best working actor? Seriously, Oscar winning Rami Malek playing a, a role that's, you know, akin to someone's hollywood debut i mean it was fairly it's small sort- <laughs> yeah it was yeah. so small yet it was it was very clutch in terms yeah. of uh-huh it, it almost rose to the level of his uh performance as freddie mercury if you ask me. <laughs> yeah also uh, on a on a serious note benny safty magnificent job he was he was yeah. so fun to watch he was amazing i don't know if you all saw this but uh sadly he's He's not directing anymore with really, uh, yeah, with his brother. Yeah. With Man. his brother, yeah, he's he's pursuing a full acting career. Well, which but I, that's I mean, if that's here, what but... he wants to do, I mean, he's yeah. he's great at both. Yeah. So. yeah. Now, in terms of brother directors and other news, um, Ethan Cohen's new movie comes out 
this fall, Drive Away Dolls, and that's his first solo movie. So we'll be I'll be curious to see how that goes. And apparently after Ethan Cohen's solo movie, the Cohen brothers are getting back together. Let's go. So yeah. Let's go. We still have the, we still have the classic brother duo in the game. Mm-hmm. If you yeah, want we... a movie right, go watch Fargo or No Country for Old Men. Anyone mm-hmm. out there that's listening. Then I woke up. <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's peak. <laughs> All right. So if we have any, if we if we don't have any more thoughts, I think we can uh, wrap this up and help the people. Uh, I mean, let us know where they can find us at, and uh, looking ahead to episode two, Barbie. We're doing the uh, Barbenheimer. We are uh, about a month or so late, a little under a month or so late to the trend. But you know what? It's we don't a, care. this Barbenheimer is like an official holiday. Yeah. I think you know the trend may be dead, but the day will be remembered and will be remembered forever. Oh, yeah. and people I, are still seeing them in theaters. So yeah. you know, I don't think it's dead yet. And I'm retrospectively, thinking. they're not going to care that we released it late. So yeah, who cares? Yeah. Like if you're just watching us a year later, yeah, whatever. it's going to be it's going to be nostalgic. Uh huh. Exactly. This is commemorative and it's history. My last thing I gotta say is, um, you know. Movie so far, movie of the year. Give Killian the Oscar, and it was everything I wanted out of a Nolan movie, narratively mm-hmm. and technically. Thank you, Nolan. I'm just glad I got to see Dane DeHaan in theaters again. Certainly, exactly. it's always a great day when you get to see something like that. All right, um, Mason, where can we find you at? Website, Instagram, whatever. Uh, yeah, find me at masonparkersound.com. The man's got a website. He's 21 and he's got a website. Hit it up. Very professional. He does commission work, so uh, give him a call. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. It's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of drumline stuff from when I was in high school and uh, some film scoring mock-ups and uh, some film analysis stuff. Um, my name, Ethan Morell for YouTube. Uh, find me on Instagram at ethanmorell.02. Jacob? Hold on, I'm trying to... See where I can link people. Give me a second. Uh, my Instagram is mason.parker21. Graduating class. Yep. <laughs> um, If you want to hit me up on Instagram to talk about movies and music in the DMs or whatever, you're more than welcome to. So Absolutely. J- yeah. JBW underscore O2. So, yeah. Oh, dude. Letterboxd. Yeah, and I was let- literally about to say that. Okay. <laughs> You can find me on Letterboxd at 21M Parker. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at um, Ethan, my name, Ethan128. You can find me on Letterboxd, JBW Watches. All right, folks. Thank you for tuning in with us to this inaugural episode. We tried our best, but um, I can say for all three of us that we had a wonderful time just chatting it up, shooting the bull. Um, and we can't wait to do it again. All right, fellas, thank you so much.